about when is Malachi prophesying? What's the historical context? Post-exilic. Post-exilic, good. Uh, and that's around what, what years-ish? 560-ish? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit later. That, that would be, yeah, post-exilic starts in the 500, 535, right there. But then Malachi is a bit later. So he, he's probably second generation or third generation. He's around 450-ish B.C. But the most important part that you guys highlighted is what I've highlighted throughout our weeks going through Malachi, is that he is a post-exilic prophet. And what was the, the social, religious, political context of post-exile Jerusalem? They had returned to Jerusalem and uh, started to rebuild the temple. I don't know if it was completed yet. When he was yeah, by this time the temple would be completed. And uh, they weren't happy because it wasn't like Solomon had. And they weren't free. Mm-hmm. And they weren't prosperous. Yes, so, so all these things, they're poor. Uh, they're still subjugated by the Persian Empire. Uh, so they're in the land, but they're not really free. They're oppressed. And religiously, there, there's no glory in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the temple is a shadow of what it used to be. And that is just not meeting their expectations of what they long for and hope for. And, and the promises in Scripture of what regathering to Israel would mean. And so instead of being greeted by prosperity and flourishing, they're greeted by hardship and affliction. And the result was that the people became embittered towards the Lord. They became cynical uh, and unbelieving. And the book is broken up into these disputes between God and his people. And the refrain throughout the book is, the Lord says something, and then, but you say, and the Israelites have their attitude, well, I don't think so, or... And they sound like a teenager, as we've highlighted before. So our passage this morning isn't too long. Uh, So I want to begin by simply reading through it. And I don't follow this strictly as I'm teaching. Sometimes I go out of order a little bit or I jump ahead. But generally, it's been a very simple model and format for this class. We kind of observe what's in the text, observation. And then we try to interpret that, of, of what it means and what the significance of those observations are, and then there's application. So, observation, interpretation, application. And I I simply highlight that because studying even Old Testament obscure minor prophets, it doesn't need to be some complex methodology. Uh, You're simply seeing what's there, trying to make sure you understand it, and then asking the question of how that applies to me as a New Covenant Christian. How do these realities transfer over uh, for us? So, again, let's just begin by reading Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, into 3, 5. And I would just highlight that chapter divisions aren't inspired. Uh, And this is a good place where you're like, shouldn't that, like, shouldn't chapter 3 have started in 2.17? And I would say yes. But let's just begin by reading. If someone would like to take... Well, I'll just read this because it's kind of weird. So Malachi 2.17 and following. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says 
the Lord of hosts. Okay? So as we begin, uh, just with general observation, what is the primary issue of the dispute? I'd say that they're declaring good to be evil to be good, kind of like our day. Yes, in a sense, uh, but it's particular in how they're viewing God. Well, what is the relationship highlighted between Israel and God in this passage? They're not declaring God to be just, for one thing. Yeah, so it's highlighted there in 2.17. They're accusing God of not being just. They say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And you talk about being cynical and unbelieving. And one of the interesting things about the Bible is that it takes place over such a long period of time. Uh, so it's not as if all the Bible just dropped out of the sky in one moment. But, but we have Israelites now in 450-ish, and they're reflecting upon you know, a thousand years of Scripture that they have in their hands, in their possession, uh, about 1,600 years of religious tradition. And so they've heard stories from their youth. They've read about the Lord of hosts and Yahweh and His covenant faithfulness to His people and how He acts in justice. They've read the Psalms of David. Uh, They have been exposed to these things. And that situation is actually very, very different than the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like They literally were in a situation where where they said, well, the God of my dad said so. (laughs) The, The God of my father's. He was just the God of Abraham who revealed himself and called himself to Abraham. And think about this. They didn't have any scripture until after the Exodus. So, so that's over 400 years of Israelites, of Jewish people, who, who didn't have a, a, a scriptural tradition. Uh, they, they said, this is the God of our fathers. But, but these Israelites, this is a very different situation. Uh, they've read the Psalms. They've read the Pentateuch. They've read the prophets. They're, they basically have the full Old Testament canon. And so they know all these things on paper, and yet their experience doesn't seem consistent with what they read about God. And so they have these, they say that everyone who does evil is right in the sight of the Lord. And again, they say, where is the God of justice? And that's not really a question. Clearly, it's an accusation that they're making against God. And we'll talk about that more later. But the point is that the the primary issue of the dispute is an accusation against God that He is not just. He claims to be. All throughout His Word, He claims to be righteous. But God not only, in their accusation, He not only fails to act up to the standard of justice, but he actually rewards, this is what they're saying, you reward unrighteousness. Everyone who does evil, they're good in the sight of the Lord. And before we get to the Lord's response to them, what's God's initial charge against them? This is also in 2.17. Worried the Lord. Mm-hmm. You have wearied me with your words. God is essentially saying, I'm tired of listening to you. You have become a burden to me because of the the grumblings of your heart, the accusations of your lips. Uh, And and the reason that this is scary to me, I, I shudder when I read these words, is because nobody who's a burden to the Lord thinks that they're a burden to the Lord. They they think that they're justified. They they think they're in the right. And if you read in the book of Malachi, it's not as if these people are in high-handed rebellion against the Lord. You, you look earlier in chapter 2, and it says, 2.13, if you have your Bibles open, it says, this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? And these people are clueless. They, they genuinely don't understand why the Lord takes issue with them. They're going, going to church. They're covering the the altar with their tears and weeping before the Lord. Lord, accept our offering. What's wrong? 
And yet you have all these issues festering in their hearts. Uh, We've seen all throughout Malachi, even thus far. They say, how has God loved us? God says, where is my honor? They they don't think God is loving. They they don't honor God. They don't fear him. And, And here, the central issue that's being called in the question is his justice. They don't think he's just. And yet, you have these accusations that are perhaps spoken, perhaps they're just the sentiment in the heart of the people that Malachi knows, and obviously the Lord knows. But this is festering in their hearts, and they don't even realize that this is an issue. They still think that they're justified. And the Lord says, you're a burden to me. You know, I'm tired. Earlier in Malachi, he said, oh, that someone would shut the doors. Oh, that someone would stop these vain offerings from being produced or offered in my name. So there's a lot of religious enthusiasm. There's a lot of emotion. But they don't recognize that there's fundamental issues with how they're viewing God and how they're relating to them. And it's scary because sin is blinding. Sin is deceiving. And the first person that it blinds is us. (laughs) We don't see our own sin. The first person that it deceives is us. Uh, And we think that we're justified. We think we're in the right. Uh, But we don't realize how egregious our our words, our attitudes, our actions are against the Lord. Uh, But in any case, this is their their attitude. And basically, 2.17 frames this dispute between the Lord and His people. Malachi 3.1 And immediately when when people see Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, most of us know that this passage is cited in the New Testament, and it's applied to um, John the Baptist and Jesus. And so immediately we just would read this and jump into the New Testament. But before we do that and jump into the New Testament, I want to put the brakes on that a little and just ask, okay, how is this functioning in the context of this passage, in this dispute between God and his people? So how is Malachi 3 is actually 1 to 5 functioning in the flow of this? How does it fit in the flow of this dispute? Judgment of God is coming. He's going to send his messenger. Mm-hmm. They're going to see his justice. Okay, exactly. So they're going to see his justice. Remember, we just read 2.17 ends with them asking the question, where is the God of justice? And, and it just begins in one. Behold, I send my messenger. And it seems kind of an abrupt, and it can almost seem like a change of direction. But... Really, what he's doing in the rest of this passage is answering that question. Where is the God of justice? I I will show you where the God of justice is. Uh, I will come, and I will reveal myself and my justice to you. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way for me, and I will come. And, And of course, typically, when people criticize or have an issue with the justice of God... Uh, and him, especially if it's him not vindicating his justice. They, they say e- they see evil in the world flourishing in some way, and they have a, an issue with it. It's probably not because, they're probably not mad at God because God has let them off the hook so many times, and they're like, why aren't you just God? I deserve punishment. <laughs> why aren't you acting? Uh, the problem is always them looking outwardly, and saying, why aren't they getting what they deserve? Why isn't that happening? Uh, and so that's certainly the attitude of the Israelites. They're, they're looking around them, and they're saying, well, why, do, why do these sinners, why do these heathens prosper, and, and we're suffering? Why are the Persians in power, and we're the ones that are subjugated? Do something, God, if you're just. And the paradigm shift, I guess. The plot twist is God says, you want me to act in justice? Okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to act in my justice. But guess what? It's going to start with you. I'm not coming to the Persians. I'm coming to my temple. I'm starting with my people. Uh, That is where the judgment is going to begin. And so, instead of judging their enemies, 
he's coming to judge them. And now, uh, as we look at this passage, maybe, maybe we just need to, to read it again, but I'll, I'll let you just survey it, survey it in your Bibles and, and survey up here. Uh, what are the, the two things that God is going to come to do? So take a, take a second, just kind of look over, try to identify the two main things that, that God is going to do when he comes. He's just going to bring justice, and first he's going to start with the uh, sons of Levi. That would be the uh, Levitical priests. Mm-hmm. They're going to learn how to do <laughs> proper offerings, mm-hmm. for one thing. And purify. Good. Purify? You're going to witness. Yes, good. And, and so the, those are good, drawing it straight from the text. He, he's purifying, uh, and he's going to witness against him for the sake of simplicity. I would say he's purifying in verses 2 to 4. Who can stand at the day of his coming? Uh, who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. Uh, he's gonna, he will purify the sons of Levi. But then you get down to verse 5, and here, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. And, and he goes on with this list of people. So there's, when he comes, there's a purification, and there's also a punishment. There is a restorative justice that God is bringing, and there is a retributive justice that God is bringing. And here the the Lord is described as the refiner's fire and the the fuller soap, both images communicating that the Lord is going to, by hook or crook, purify His people. It might be a painful process, uh, but the Lord will see to it that regardless of what it takes, regardless of what it requires, that he will see to it that his people will be pure. Uh, And of course, this imagery is is something that we see throughout Scripture, of the the refiner's fire, that the gold is is put and the silver is put into the fire. It's burned, uh, put at extremely high temperatures so that the dross and all the impurities rise to the surface and and are removed so that all that remains is that pure gold. Uh, and so that is what the Lord is seeking to do with His people. And oftentimes that comes through afflictions and hardships and, and suffering. And the Lord says, I'm, I'm going to bring this, and it might be painful, uh, but I'm going to see to it that I have a people for my own possession who are pure and holy. Uh, but then in verse 5, that, that is, I would say, certainly not what is going on. This is not a, this is not a restorative act of discipline. This is a punishment. It is uh, justice that is being executed as a punishment. And obviously there's a lot more uh, in the text, uh, but we have at least observed the basic flow of the text. Uh, We have the Jews doubting God's justice, bringing accusations against him with their cynicism and unbelief. You have God saying, you've wearied me. I'm, I'm tired uh, of hearing you bring these charges against me. You're a burden to me. And then you have God's response in verses 1 to 5, that you, you want to see the God of justice? Okay, I will come, uh, and I'm going to purify my people, and I'm going to bring punishment uh, against those who have rejected me. Now, let's go back and, and ask some interpretive questions. So I've characterized them, them saying, where is the God of justice? And I'm reading it with a tone. That's an interpretation that I'm already making right there. And I'm saying that's not a genuine question, but it's a a cynical accusation that they're making against God. What gives me the right to read that into the text when that's not included in the text itself? Uh, You know, the text doesn't say this is a cynical accusation against God and not really a question. Especially, you know, you compare that to... Jeremiah 12.1, Jeremiah says, Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the treacherous thrive? And yet I wouldn't say that Jeremiah is just making an accusation against the Lord or just being cynical. I think he's asking a genuine question. And I'm making interpretive decisions. Why would I say Malachi 2.17 is an accusation, even though the text says they were asking but Jeremiah 12.1 is not, even though we really have the same issue at play. So that, that's a question I'm putting forth for you guys. Why, why would I read this in one way and read this in a different way? 
basically at Malachi, those are they're very directed. And it's a declarative, declarative statement. Uh, it's a rhetorical question there at the end. They already know the answer. They're posting those claims, whereas Jeremiah is more of a a limitation of cry out to God of why is this happening? Mm-hmm. Why are we still doing this out of his anguish? Uh, he's still seeking answers versus having come to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. I also think that Jeremiah, he starts it out by saying what the Lord is, that he is righteous. Um, however, even though you're righteous, like this is happening, but that's frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so these are both good. You guys are doing what I'm about to highlight is that you notice the immediate context. So in the immediate context, they're starting with this declaration that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. It's an explicit indictment that God does not deal with people according to justice. Uh, that really, in God's sight, it's the evil who who are blessed. It's the evil who, who God rewards and, and curries favor. It's an indictment, clearly. But also, the wider context of Malachi. You know, nowhere in Malachi are the Israelites shown as being humble and, and teachable and, and really seeking to learn. The whole book is a series of disputes between God and his people. And everything in the book of Malachi, the tone of the whole book, points in the opposite direction. Uh, and that's why we highlighted all those disputes at the beginning to get a tone of what the whole book feels like because the wider context also informs the narrower context. Uh, but then we compare that to Jeremiah 12.1. He begins, like Melanie said, Righteous are you, O Lord. He begins with a declaration that God really is just and that God can be He's worthy of our trust. And he says, When I complain to you, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous thrive? So Jeremiah, in one sense, is encountering the same thing. He feels like his experience doesn't match with what God has revealed about himself. Uh, there seems to be inconsistencies. And yet, Jeremiah begins with the fundamental affirmation that, God, you are righteous. Even when I'm complaining, uh, I know in my head and my heart that you are just and you are righteous. But I I don't get this. (laughs) And and in the broader context of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is presented as a faithful prophet of the Lord. Even despite the fact that it doesn't all add up in his head, uh, we know that at large, Jeremiah is, is faithful. Uh, so this is, we shouldn't read this as Jeremiah rolling his eyes and saying, oh, okay, Lord, if you're so righteous, then why do all the sinners thrive? Uh, whereas that is more appropriate when we read Malachi. Uh, and even though it's not explicit in the text, we make those interpretive decisions based on the immediate context and the wider context. Uh, and that should shape how we read individual verses. So, I already highlighted that in 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger. Most of us know, okay, that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the messenger who prepares the way of the Lord. It's really interesting because then you have the messenger of the covenant, uh, which is not referring to that messenger, but it's a different messenger. And this messenger is actually identified with the Lord of hosts, with the I, I send my messenger, uh, and then I am coming. So the Lord says, I'm coming. And then, but who can endure the day of his coming? And, and so the messenger of the covenant is the Lord. Uh, these two figures are identified as one. And, and certainly I wouldn't say that this is like a proof text for the Trinity, but it's just one of the many places we see in the Old Testament where God identifies himself with another person that, that enters into uh, the, the realm of history and the redemptive story. And so here, uh, God says he is coming, but clearly it's the messenger of the covenant that is, is coming. And so here's the, the difficult, more difficult question. If Malachi 3.1 is referring to John the Baptist... And the messenger of the covenant is Jesus. 
And we've already observed that when he comes, he's coming to do two things in this passage, to purify his people and to punish, his, punish those who rebel against him. How should we understand this passage in relation to the life and ministry of Jesus? That question means, how are we to, how does this fit in with the coming of Christ? I mean, did he do all of that? Did he do some of it? Did he do most of it? Is it, how do we understand these prophecies in relation to the person of Christ? Looks like it's the first coming and the second coming, those two things. He comes and purifies, and he takes away for us the first coming, and then he's coming back for judgment. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts? Well, in his first coming, he wasn't there for judgment. And he even says so. Mm -hmm. Um, Purifying the sons of Levi, I'm struggling with that one. I mean, he opened the way for Gentiles. Yeah, yeah. So... Needless to say, there's going to be various ways that, that different people are going to you know, precisely interpret these and see, how, see their fulfillment. Uh, but I would say today, for, for me, uh, the best way that I can think to understand these things is not merely that, that there is a, a first coming and, and second coming issue at play. I think all of this actually is something that Jesus began to do at his first coming. Uh, and, and I think it's something that he even is doing continually throughout the church. And I think it's something that he will finally bring to fulfillment at the second coming. Uh, and certainly there's different emphases where some would be more clearly and, and more of a point of emphasis in the first coming and others would be more clearly a point of emphasis in the second coming. But just as an example, John the Baptist says in Luke 3.8 to the Pharisees, and he's speaking about Jesus, says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is a good passage because we have the my messenger, and he's making he's teaching about the messenger of the covenant, uh, and he's even using some of the similar imagery about fire and purification. And so he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand you know, right now. What is he talking about? He's separating already the wheat from the chaff. In the first coming of Christ, Jesus was separating the true believing Israel from unbelieving Israel. Uh, he was corporately refining his people to the true people of God who recognize and receive their promised Messiah. Uh, and it and separating them from unbelieving Israel who rejected their Messiah. And not only was he separating them, but he was separating them unto judgment. And John the Baptist says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, clearly, this is language of judgment. Uh, And so John is saying, even if it hasn't come to its fulfillment and his final fruition, John the Baptist is saying, even now, this process has begun. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. Uh, and if you, there's other passages that I like to include, but I thought for the sake of time, I'd leave them out. But Jesus uses similar language that even now, this is what he's doing. He's separating and judgment is beginning. And then I would say all throughout the, the ministry of Jesus, uh, even in the Sermon on the Mount, in one sense, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you know, everyone who looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. Anyone who is angry with his brother has already committed murder. And in one sense, I would say, who can stand 
under that kind of teaching? Who can endure the day of His coming where He sets forth righteousness and brings forth the standard so high and says, anyone who doesn't understand the true righteous, where what true righteousness consists in, like who can stand before that teaching, that level of, of holiness and righteousness? Uh, and He reveals and exposes our sin and our depravity. And in that sense, even by his teaching, he's like the refiner's fire. He's like the fuller soap purifying his people. And of course, he literally did come to his temple, and he literally purified the temple, and he drove out the money changers who were making his father's house into uh, a, a den of thieves. And then one other point I would pick up is that, you know, Peter uses this language explicitly, talking about in our lives today as Christians, uh, that he says, you, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And and so I think if, if we're depending on what your, your eschatology is, uh, him refining the sons of Levi. Well, in, in the New Covenant, we, we have a universal priesthood of believers. And, and we're all offering sacrifices to God, pleasing and acceptable to him. And, and what is Christ doing even in the midst of all throughout our lives? He, he's working as the refiner to purify us and to refine in us a faith that is more precious than gold, though that is refined by fire. And so all of these things, I would say, started at the first coming of Christ. I would say they're in some way, sometimes more, sometimes less, at play throughout the church. And of course, they'll bring, come to their fulfillment uh, at the second coming. And it's on that day when Christ will perfectly sanctify his people as, as the highest expression of the refiner's fire. And they'll be, all of us will be presented as perfect, perfect, spotless gold without any blemish, any impurity. It's on that day when, when Christ will once and for all separate the, the wheat from the chaff and the, the sheep from the goats. And it's on that day when Christ will come and enter into final climactic judgment against the, the sorcerers, against the liars, against those who mistreat and oppress other people. He'll bring that judgment to fulfillment. So all this to say, whether it's here in Malachi 3 or in other places, I think we have to be a little bit careful about being hyper-punctiliar, <laughs> looking at one you know, verse, looking for exact correspondence to say, well, this verse must be this verse. Uh, and it's only that, but seeing that in the, the person and work of Christ, both in his first coming, in his present session as the high priest, ruling and reigning as king in his church, and in his second coming where he comes to judge. All of these things are being fulfilled in sometimes different ways. And so I think that's how I would approach the text and, and deal with these difficulties. Because you read it, and it is difficult. Of Like, well, he didn't, he didn't really seem to do that, uh, so, so how, how should we understand it? And one more thing, as we consider... You know, the, particularly verse 5, uh, but even verses 2 to 4. I just want to highlight that we are talking about Jesus, who's coming in judgment. Uh, Jesus himself never shies away from speaking about himself coming to judge. In fact, in John 5, he says, The Father judges no one. He has entrusted all judgment to me. And Paul speaks about Jesus being revealed from heaven with flaming uh, and flaming vengeance, bringing uh, justice and and vengeance upon those who have disobeyed and and rejected Christ. So, to say, be be careful. I don't mean to slander them, but the the K-Love God, uh, the K-Love Jesus, where Jesus is only gentle and meek and kind and gentle, Jesus is all those things, and he's more of that than we can ever fathom. His compassion and kindness and gentleness is more than we can grasp, and yet he's also, Jesus is the God of justice, 
And, and Jesus is going to come in justice. And Jesus is going to assert his righteousness. So, we need to always be testing our, our thoughts concerning Christ, our mental image about his character and his attributes against the truths of Scripture. Uh, and that's just constant refinement, constantly testing uh, what does Scripture say actually concerning Christ. You know, do I have a cultural, uh, even just a, a Western evangelical idea about who God is? Or do, are my thoughts about God actually shaped and governed by the Scriptures? Okay, so, so now I want to ask uh, a couple questions. There, there's lots of questions that I want to ask from this text, but I, I don't want to get too extraneous. I want to, at, at the beginning at least, stay on, on the primary issue. What are the kinds of things that prompt people to ask this question slash make this accusation? So, again, the, the question, of course, is where is the God of justice? So, what are the kinds of things that happen, that, that make people ask, ask that, or really accuse God of that? Self-righteousness? Yeah, that, that's certainly one. So what, what else? What are other things? Watching unbelievers thrive and get very prosperous while, while we struggle. Yeah, and that, that's what Jeremiah, that's what they're, they're feeling. Well, what other things... Bad things happen to good Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or to innocence. Yeah. Children. Yeah. So, so, I would say any type of, of tragedy, and that could be a global tragedy, something like a tsunami, you know, that, that wreaks just havoc and destruction, forest fires, people die. Personal tragedy, you know, you get that. Word from the doctor that, that you or a loved one has cancer or that or maybe a loved one dies. And uh, these sor- sorts of things, they trigger in us, people in general, even Christians, unbelievers, where we say God is just, he's good, or he's supposed to be, but my experience says the opposite. I can't make this fit together. What should we do when we ourselves, as believers, feel dissonance between God as set forth in His Word and God as we experience Him in our lives? What should be our default? Because obviously it's, it's not what <laughs> they do in Malachi 3. What should we do? Trust that He has a greater purpose. Whatever's happening, He's got a, he's got a reason. Mm-hmm. We don't know, but he does. Praise God for who he has revealed himself to be and ask him to ask him to show us that truth, ask us, ask him to change our hearts as we walk through it, because his truth never does change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also important to be honest with the Lord of your heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, with humility and recognition of who God is. Um, because he knows it anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, being able to humbly say this is how my heart is feeling right now. Um, but Lord, please help me to see what you have in store for me. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think Jeremiah twelve is a good example of that. Actually, uh, and all throughout the Psalms, uh, it's shocking what God would have included in His Word. Uh, the, the kinds of things that are like, God, why are you listening? <laughs> Where are you? And yet, because of the immediate and wider context, we we see that those things can be said from a place of faith. Uh, we, actually, we actually can come to God with genuine uh, questions and things that don't make sense in our mind and say, Lord, you know, Jeremiah says, you are righteous, O Lord, when I, when I complain against you. I, I know this is true. And so you fall back on the promises that God has made, the, the truths concerning his character and his attribute, and you bring those before yourself and, and you reaffirm that those are true even when you don't see it. And sometimes that's what faith looks like. Walking, not by sight, but by... You're walking in the darkness, trusting that His Word is true, even though your experience doesn't seem to corroborate that. And and we have to just acknowledge that we're small, we're finite, we don't have the... We don't have the definitive 
comprehensive perspective on what God is doing. But, you know, I love that this kind of stuff is included in Scripture. Like, we're, we're allowed to wrestle with these things, and we're shown how to. There's a godly way to wrestle with feeling like God is unjust, and there's an ungodly way to wrestle with it. But, but there's actually space for us as Christians to have these feelings and like Melanie said, God knows, God knows that these, these thoughts of our heart anyways, uh, there's no sense in trying to deny, but there's a way that we can say, Lord, I know that I'm the one who's in error here. I don't have the, the, the full perspective. You are righteous and you are good, but I don't see it. Uh, you know, help change my heart. Uh, and perhaps the Lord will show you uh, perhaps he won't. You know, he never showed Job. He was never like, hey, Job, this is actually why I'm doing it. He really just told Job, humble yourself. You know, you're not God. I am. You're a creature. You're small. You're finite. So, trust me. Okay, are, are there other, other ways that we could weary the Lord with our words? So, here, it's an accusation. Where is the God of justice? And I'll say that that just comes over into the New Testament one-to-one. That is a present issue that we all deal with. You don't need to really account for anything. But are are there other ways that that we can weary the Lord with our words? What other? Well, I I think the the big difference I see from Malachi and the Jeremiah passage is humility. Like Jeremiah had humility, and the other, in the the Malachi passage, they were more self-righteous, whereas like they, they, their comprehension of what was going on was superior to how, like, why don't you get it, God? Mm-hmm. Like, they were, they were putting themselves in the wrong position, and they did it, like, and where Jeremiah put himself in the correct positioning before mm-hmm. God, and so I, I would think anytime you put God in a, where he doesn't belong, which is at the throne, mm-hmm. as soon as you dethrone him, you're, you're going to not do so well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and so certainly just as, as a general principle, anytime that we treat God like a peer <laughs> or an equal, any time that we don't humble ourselves under God and realize that He's the Creator, He has prerogative to do as He pleases with my life, we're, we're going to immediately start bumping into problems with the way that we relate to God. But I would just highlight that of course, this could not only be with the justice of God, but you can just as like, likely say, where is, where is the mercy of God? Where, where is the love of God? Where is the goodness of God? In a disposition that undermines his authority, uh, and in all of these things, uh, we might not articulate them with our lips or, or even form these like thoughts in our hearts but I would just say, be careful, because every time we grumble against God in some way, and we even grumble against the circumstances of our lives, that it, we're not directing it to God necessarily as, as we think about it, but we're just going through our day, grumbling about this, grumbling about that, not realizing that when we grumble against the circumstances of our lives or about them, we're grumbling against the God who has ordained them. And we're making an implicit statement that God is not wise. If God was wise, you know, this wouldn't be happening. If God was good, this wouldn't be happening. If God was merciful, if he was just, these things wouldn't be happening. And all that is going on when we're just, even just in our own hearts, grumbling, ah, this, that, the other thing. And we're, because we're not believing God's promises that, that He actually works all things together for good, that He actually is sovereign and purposing every circumstance in our life as, as a wise Father. I want to ask this question. So, we noted a, a twofold purpose of He was coming, of His coming. He was coming to punish and to purify. Uh, it was restorative and retributive. Okay, how does suffering in the life of a believer, how is it different than suffering in the life of an unbeliever? As we think about a twofold purpose, trying to make this question clear enough to answer without giving away the answer. So it's supposed to be how is suffering different uh, or how does it differ in the life of a believer versus the life of an unbeliever? 
One is temporary and one is eternal. Okay. That's certainly a, a very legitimate distinction. But even in, in the Lord's purpose, so certainly the nature of it, that would be true. But what about the, the Lord, what the Lord's doing? Right. There's, a, there's an intent in what we go through as believers in this life. It's the worst that it's going to be is for us right now, but it also serves a purpose to refine us, mm-hmm. to make us more like Christ. So it's not in vain. It's not just for. It's not just because there's evil in the world. Mm-hmm. Sin reigns, um, but it points us to Christ. Yeah, he's, he's chastening the believer to sanctify them, whereas suffering for the unbeliever can actually be the judgment of God mm-hmm. for sin. Yeah, in this life. Yeah, and, and that is really important to be mindful of in our own lives and even as we try to make sense of the world around us. God purposes affliction and suffering in the life of his children for their good in a way that is not true in the life of the, those who reject him. It, it is a manifestation of, of Romans 1 where, where God, well Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And so suffering in the world, by and large, is a manifestation of God's just judgment against the world uh, in rebellion against him. And yet, the very same manifestation of God's judgment against sin can be a manifestation of his kindness and love for his children. So, you know, something like COVID. People, people were very reluctant to say that COVID was a manifestation of God's judgment. Uh, but, like, Disease and sin and pestilence and death doesn't come, it's not a manifestation of God's love by and large. <laughs> this happens because the world is under sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And yet, the same, you'd have two people, you know, let's say they have the same sickness, whether it's COVID or cancer, or whatever, and they're in beds right next to each other. And in one of those people, the, the Lord is coming as we think about Malachi 3.1, He's coming to purify and refine the offerings of His people that they might be pure and holy and righteous and offer him true and acceptable sacrifice. He's purging out the sin of their lives. He's purging out self-dependence and self-reliance and teaching them to look to him and trust him. And yet, in the person in the bed right next to them, it is a manifestation of God's judgment for their rejection of him and their sin and their defiance against him. And the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And uh, so I, I would just keep that in mind as we think about even the very same thing is purposed differently in the lives of his children. And, and so as a believer, whenever you experience affliction and suffering, even if it's the same exact thing that somebody else might be gr- going through, that doesn't mean the Lord is using it in the same way and for the same purposes. And, and you should tell yourself that. This is not God's anger against me. His anger has been satisfied on the cross. Uh, this is not a manifestation of his wrath against me. He rather, as a son, as a father disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines the one he, he loves. And so for one, it's corrective discipline, like we see in verses Malachi 3, 2-4, and while for others, it might be punitive for their rejection against him. And, and it's that way even when, when the gospel comes to people who are presently unbelievers. For some the gospel is going to be an aroma of, of life. And for others, it's going to be an aroma of death. The gospel is going to have two different effects. The same word, same gospel being preached, is going to have different effects on people. I think we already kind of discussed this aspect of... I'll, I'll read the question um, in verse 17. God faults them. I would say God faults them for asking this question. Where is the God of justice? Is it ever wrong to ask questions? Or are there certain questions that are off limits? Uh, And basically, we already talked about this. uh, So we won't go through it again. But, you know, just to highlight that it's not about the the question. They're not faulted for asking where is the God of justice, but it it is the the disposition of their hearts as they asked it. And so there, there are places where we can ask that question and we can wrestle with it. Uh, if our heart is submitted to the Lord and, and we know that, Lord, you are righteous, yet 
man, I'm struggling to understand how this makes sense, uh, and I don't understand it. Uh, there's a difference between faith, seeking, understanding, and cynicism and unbelief, you know, manifested in accusations, really. Okay, any question or, or comment before we close? I don't know. I think we tangentially touched on it, but on that last question, isn't also <clears throat> the disposition of the person? So if, if a son asks their father for their inheritance, even if it's not the proper time or whatever, you're going to get a different response than if a stranger walks up and asks for your, where's my inheritance? Mm-hmm. You know, that'll kindle anger because it's inappropriate. It's yeah. not out of place, but if a son does it, then you can be, even if it's a slightly off, like you take the opportunity to, to adjust it, or but you understand where it's coming from because there is something there in that relationship. So when we look at whether it's David or Jeremiah, obviously they're, they're with faith that they are sons of God, that they can come before him mm-hmm. and ask a question in a way that somebody that doesn't have that um, disposition can't do that. Yeah. And expect anything good. Yeah, yeah. So there's when we read scripture, there, there's an immediate context and, and a wider context, and in our as we relate to God, there's a relational context. <laughs> uh, there's whether you're coming from a relationship of faith and trust and submission, or you're coming from you know doubt and unbelief and criticism. All right. Well, we we need to close. So let's pray, uh, Father. We want to confess that you are righteous that you are just. Uh, And Lord, even though we live in a a world that is plagued by sin, uh, plagued by rebellion against you, and and is under your judgment, and and certainly we see the effects of that. And at times, the the righteous do suffer, and, and the wicked do prosper. And yet, Lord, we know that you will establish justice once and for all. The day is coming where uh, all of uh, these things will be brought to their final and, and full uh, fulfillment. And, and so we, we place our trust in you, Lord, and even in our own lives when we experience uh, affliction and, and hardship of, of various kinds, uh, we want to trust that, that you are not, because of what Christ has done for us in, in satisfying your wrath uh, against sin for your people, that it's not a manifestation of your anger or your wrath towards us, but it is uh, your kindness and as a, the refiner, the refiner's fire uh, to, to purify us and make us holy so that we'd be like silver and gold that's pure and has been tested by and shown to be true. And so, Lord, we, we just pray that you would do that work in our lives uh, and, and we want to trust you for it. Purify the, the meditations of our heart and, and the words of our mouth and may we never bring such accusations against you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.